So how is your circadian rhythm? Are your dips and your rises, are they average or are they abnormal? And, and how would you know? Well, your circadian rhythm has been described as sort of a 24-hour internal clock that's working in the background of your brain. And the, the rhythm part is describing how there's a regular schedule of going back and forth between being sleepy and being alert. So that's what your, your rhythm is, is doing. Now, I'm really hoping that your schedule right now is on the alert part instead of on the sleepy part. So, so hopefully that'll, that'll work out that you're, you're with us right now. That'd be good. According to the National Sleep Foundation, most adults have the biggest dip in their energy when it's 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. when everybody's usually sleeping, right? The second biggest time of a dip in our energy where our alertness is a little less is, is right after lunch, you know, when we've eaten and between the hours of, of 1 p.m. and 3 p.m., again, when most everybody is fast asleep, right? Um, or maybe that's just around here. I don't know. What kind of impact can your circadian rhythm have on your day? Well, there was a, a report out a few years ago that describes some interesting things about your circadian rhythm. It's from the National Center for Biotechnical Information, and this is what it says. Cortisol has a distinct circadian rhythm regulated by the brain's central pacemaker. Loss of this rhythm is associated with metabolic abnormalities, fatigue, and poor quality of life. Conventional glucocorticoid, I looked that up by the way, replacement cannot replicate this rhythm. Sure, yeah, I mean, that makes sense, right? Well, thankfully, Lauren Kahn with Taste of Home magazine also saw that report, and, and she was able to take that report and take the information from the report and turn it into something that would make sense for someone like me. So she took the report, wrote an article, and the title of her article is, This is the Right Time to Drink Your Coffee. That, that's a lot easier, right? We, we don't have to have all the, the big fancy words. This is the right time to drink your coffee. Now, the, the report seems to point in the direction that your cortisol is cranking when you wake up in the morning. So actually, the best time for that first cup of coffee is an hour after you wake up. Now, some of you are thinking in your minds, <laughs> those silly scientists, they have no idea what they're talking about, right? Because you've got to have it first, right? I mean, you've got the, the T-shirt, you know, you've got the towel hanging over the, the, the little rack on your oven, you, you've got the, the mug, and, and you've got the little decorative sign next to your Keurig machine that all say that kind of famous quote, first we do the coffee, then we do the things, right? I mean, I, that's how you move through life every day. Some of you, your first cup of coffee is the stuff of legends. I mean, getting that thing is important to the world and to your family and to the people around you, right? But what if I were to tell you that that first cup of coffee or that first Dr. Pepper or that first cold pizza or bacon or whatever it is that you have to have first, what if I were to tell you that your first fix of those things is not deep enough, that there's a, a deeper fix, that, that in the morning what you need most is to be mentally alert, but you also need to be spiritually alert? Or put another way, the, the best fix for your life first thing in the morning is to have your soul find hope. 
Well, what does that mean? And how can that happen? Well, let's see if we can find out together. Psalm 63, beginning with verse 1. O God, you are my God. David was being hunted by who? Well, most believe that he was a younger man and he was being hunted by King Saul who was trying to keep him from being the next king. Some believe it could have been a little later in his life and it was his rebellious son Absalom who was coming after him trying to force his way into being the next king. Either way, though, David was being hunted down and and he was being forced out into the desert. He was being forced into the wilderness. In other words, he was in the middle of nowhere He's facing great difficulty. He's feeling very alone, and he's feeling like nobody knows what he's going through. Ever been there? Ever felt that way, feeling that way, maybe even today? Maybe your marriage feels like a desert. Maybe your relationship with your kids feels like a desert. Maybe your relationship with your parents feels like a desert. Maybe things at work or at school, they, they feel like a desert. Maybe, maybe your health feels like you are sitting out in the desert. David's on the run. He's in the middle of nowhere. He probably feels like he doesn't have a friend in the world. And what does he do? He cries out. And who does he cry out to? Well, he cries out to God. Now, that, that doesn't sound completely surprising, Right? Listened to a song last week, and, and part of the song goes like this. Everybody wants change. Don't nobody want to change, though. Don't nobody want to pray till they got something to pray for. See, people tend to cry out to God when they have something to pray for, but otherwise, they just kind of do life. People tend to cry out to God when there's trouble. And that's a great thing. In fact, it's exactly what God asks us to do. Psalm 50, verse 5, call upon me, the Lord says, in the day of trouble. Call upon me in the day of trouble. Call upon the Lord when things get rough. Yes, call upon the Lord when trouble comes. But David is doing more than just desperately calling out to God because he's stuck between a a cactus and a hard place. he's, He's crying out to God in a completely different way. At first glance, the the words sound like some fancy beginning to a prayer to a Christmas Eve service, right? Oh God, you are our God. But it's not fancy at all. In fact, the original language goes something like this, Elohim, you are my El. Or to put it another way, God, you are my mighty God. God, you are my mighty God. Choir just sang that, right? Savior, my my Savior, he he can move the mountains. My God, he's mighty to save. He's mighty to save. And then that, that one little next word, it goes with the next phrase, but I'm, I'm pulling in. He's mighty to save forever. He's mighty to save forever. See, King Saul, he can, he can hunt David down for, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years maybe. Absalom, if it was Absalom, same thing. You know, they can hunt 
David down for a few years, a few decades. But then eventually they would have to stop hunting, right? They'd either catch him and kill him or, or maybe one or both of them would die. But God, the mighty God, David's mighty God, does not just save for 10 or 20 years or, or even a lifetime. David's God, God the mighty God, the God who can bring down nations, that God, he saves forever. He is mighty to save forever. See, this isn't just the beginning of a psalm. This isn't just the beginning of a prayer. David is out in the desert, and he's reminding his heart, my God is not a religious icon. My God is not a a good luck charm. My God is not just some good moral teacher with some fancy scrolls or some golden plates. No, David is reminding his heart, my God is holy, holy, holy. My God is the Lord of, of heaven and earth. My God is I am who I am. If your God is God, then then I pray that that you would enjoy him for who he is, not who you think he is, not who you feel like he is, not who you want him to be, but that you would enjoy God for who he actually is. J.I. Packer said this, for the God with whom they had to do is the same God with whom we have to do. So the God of the Old Testament is still the same God today. We aren't aren't doing with with a different God. He goes on. A person of goodwill may grow cynical and callous, but nothing of this sort happens to the Creator. He never becomes less truthful, merciful, just, or good than He used to be. He says this, The character of God is today and will always be exactly what it was in Bible times. He's, He's not a different God. And then he encourages us with this. Amid all the changes and uncertainties of life in a postmodern age, God and his Christ remain the same, almighty to save. This is who God is. He's the mighty God. David is not confused about who he's praying to. He's not confused about who he's singing to. That's why he says this next, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you Earnestly, earnestly, or more literally, early in the morning. See, whether he was in his palace with people waiting on him or or whether he was out in the desert alone, David had discovered that his best fix first thing in the morning was not a cup of coffee. He had discovered that his, his best fix was the glory and the majesty and the beauty and the radiance and the power and the authority and the mercy and the grace and the love and the salvation of God. That was his best fix first and most. Now, does that mean that you have to read the Bible before you drink your first cup of coffee? No, that's not what it means. It does mean this, though. That cup of coffee, no matter how robust and rich and rewarding it may be, that that first cup of, of hot coffee, its glory is limited. Its, its glory is limited. We could say in a sense it's, it's limited to how long it stays hot. 
Now, somebody might say, oh, no, no, I, I can nuke it in the microwave. I can extend that glory. You know, I, I can keep it warm, keep it hot. It's fine. Or somebody else might say, oh, I got a Yeti. Man, man, I, I, can, I make that glory last for hours. No, it's, it's good. I'm fine. Okay. You can extend the glory of that hot coffee. But, but eventually, it's going to get cold eventually. Or, or you're going to drink it, and you're going to have to get more, make another cup or, or make another pot. But the glory of God, the mighty God, it, it doesn't need to be nuked in the microwave. The glory of God, the mighty God, does not need stainless steel, double-walled vacuum insulation. Revelation 21, verse 23. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. The glory of God is the light and the energy of the holy city of heaven. That's some serious glory. That is more fantastic than stainless steel, double-walled vacuum insulation. The glory of God is, is unlike anything in the universe. John Piper defines it this way, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. I, I always think of the word manifold as, man, it just keeps unfolding. You know, there's, there's no stopping. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. It's a great definition. Let's flesh it out a bit. Piper goes on. The heavens are telling the glory of God. What does that mean? It means he is shouting at us. He shouts with clouds. He shouts with blue expanse. He shouts with gold on the horizons. He shouts with galaxies and stars. He is shouting, I am glorious. Yes, your cup of coffee shouts, wake up to you in the morning. But your cup of coffee cannot shout with clouds, shout with sky, shout with oceans, shout with sunrise, shout with sunset, shout with stars and planets and galaxies. But the glory of God, it can shout and it can shout and it can shout. It can never lose its pitch. It can never get out of tune. It never loses its intensity. It never loses its power and its greatness. So that makes a lot of sense when we connect it with David saying, you know what, first thing, I'm going after the glory of God. I'm going to earnestly seek first and most the glory of God, the mighty God. Listen to what he says next. Oh God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's desert language right there, right? David's saying, man, I'm, I'm hot, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. I'm completely parched. I'm completely exhausted. I've got nothing left. Again, you may feel that way even today. What would you ask for in that moment? And you're wiped out. 
you got nothing left. What would we ask for? I mean, wouldn't we kind of say, hey, God, uh, how, about, how about you just save me from this, right? How about you rescue me from this? At the very least, send an angel down with some Gatorade or some smart water. I, I need some immediate help here. I mean, doesn't that kind of sound like how we might pray? God, I'm in trouble. God, I, I need you to make something happen. But what do we find David asking for? He's, he's asking for God. He wants God. He's desperate. He's exhausted. He's got nothing left. And he asks for God. He's not the only psalmist to, to use this language. Psalm 42, verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. These folks in the Old Testament, man, they, man, they were thirsty for God. You know what they were doing? They were moving in. They were moving, but they were moving in. From the inside, from their inner being, they were learning to thirst for God. They were learning to long for God. One day Jesus stood up in front of a crowd of people, and this is what he said to the crowd. John chapter 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose from the grave so that in your moment, your dark moment, your darkest moment, your most discouraging moment, your most disabling, disabling, let's go disabling, your most disabling moment, your most depressing moment. In, in that moment, Jesus died and rose again to help satisfy your thirst. Only Jesus can satisfy the thirst of your soul. There's a lot of things your soul and your heart and your mind, they're, they're thirsting for. Some people are thirsty for justice. They're, they're thirsty for fairness. They're thirsty for for peace, they're thirsty for calm. They're thirsty for love. They're thirsty for joy. They're thirsty for hope. But, but only Jesus can satisfy that thirst in your soul. The men in dazzling clothes told the women at the tomb, he's, he's not here. <laughs> he's, he's not here. He's, he's risen, just as he said. That's important. See, Christians do not worship a philosophy. Christians are not worshiping a statue of a dead leader. Christians worship a risen Savior. Jesus is alive. Our God is alive. That's, that's who we worship. The psalmist knew that. Boy, they're, they're crying out for the living God. David knew that. He, he's crying out for the living God. Sure, there may have been some other things they needed. Food, water, maybe some support, some counseling, maybe some medicine, maybe some financial help, some prayer. Yeah, they need, needed other things. But what they needed most was God. From the middle of his desert turn, in the middle of his desperation, David is crying out. He's saying, you know what? I earnestly need God. I'm going to seek after God. 
God told Jeremiah to write these words. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. All your heart. God's not hiding. He's not hiding at all. He, he can be found and he desires to be found. And he desires that we seek after him. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about David in the desert. There was no desert in his heart, though there was a desert around him. It's good. There was a desert around him. It was all bad around him. It was bad at the hospital. It was bad at work. It was bad at school. It was bad at home. It was bad. Things weren't great. There was a desert going on in his life, but not in his heart. In his heart, he knew who God was. In his heart, David knew that even though everything was terrible, he could trust God. How did he know that? How did he know he could trust God? Listen to what he says next, verse 2. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. This wasn't his first rodeo. He, He knew about the glory of God. He had seen the glory of God. David knew who he was praying to. He knew what he was praying about, and he knew what he should expect. He knew who God was. He had seen God. He knew God to be trusted. He'd seen God work in his life before. He had seen God work in the lives of other people before. He knew he could trust God, the mighty God, his mighty God. Just for the sake of conversation, I'm going to kind of break us down into three categories of people. One, you're not a Christian. You, you don't believe in Jesus, or maybe you believe some things about Jesus, but you are, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Second category is you're a Christian, but you do not know God, the mighty God. You're a Christian, but you do not know God, the mighty God. Or third, you're a Christian, and you know God, the mighty God. So let's think through those for a second. If you're not a Christian, then we deeply hope that that you are catching a a few glimpses of the glory of God today, that you're catching a, a few pictures of Jesus, and that your soul might be sending you a text right now. Hey, you know what? That thing you're thirsty for, that thing that you're trying to find in your marriage, that thing that you're trying to find in your family, that thing that you're trying to find at work or at school, that, that thing that you're trying to find in your favorite sports team, that, that thing that you're trying to find in your education, that thing you're trying to find in your vacation, that thing that you're trying to find in your kids or your grandkids or your granddog, you know, that thing that you're thirsting for, that thing can only be satisfied, that thirst can only be met in Jesus. That, that's our hope. Our hope is that your soul is sending you that text right now. But maybe you think, nah, I don't need that text. I'm good. I, I don't need that text. I'm, I'm fine. And you would say, you know what? At the end of the day, I'd rather have my education. I'd rather have my girlfriend. I'd rather have my boyfriend. I'd, I'd rather have my spouse and my family. I'd, I'd rather have my season tickets. I'd rather have my vacation. I'd rather have my weekends. I'd rather have my granddog. 
I'd rather have any of those things other than Jesus. I, I'm good. I don't want him. I don't need him. To that, we would just graciously say, with as much kindness as we possibly can, that hell is real. That hell is a place of everlasting horror and terror. It is a place of pain and suffocating regret that never ends. Someone might say, man, I can't, can't believe you people buy into that fairy tale. Vance Havner was once the pastor at First Baptist Church in Charleston and over his years of pastoring in different churches, he had someone that came up to him one time and a church member said to him, look, I, I don't like the sermons that you preach about hell. I don't, I don't like those sermons. And the church member said to him, I want you to preach about the meek and lowly Jesus. In other words, I want, I want you to preach about the humble Jesus that just, you know, that loved everybody. Preach about the, the meek and lowly Jesus. To which Havner responded, that's where I got my information about hell. So you can deny it, you can ignore it, you can suppress it, you can act like it's a fairy tale, you can say you do not believe in it, but Jesus adamantly believed in hell. He spoke about it consistently. He warned about it constantly. So why are we talking about hell? Well, this is what Jesus said, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, in his son, shall not perish but have eternal life. See, that thirst that your soul has, even if you don't know you're thirsty yet, your soul has a thirst. And you will keep trying to find it in everything else in the world. You'll try to find it in people. You'll try to find it in your health. You'll try to find it in your accomplishments. But only Jesus can satisfy the thirst of your soul because the ultimate thirst of your soul is to be right with God. When you die, whether it's sudden or whether it's just from old age, only Jesus can make things right between you and God. The only way to get into God's heaven is through Jesus. You cannot get into God's heaven with your grand health or your grand retirement or your grand dog. The only way that a person can get into God's heaven to be right with God, to be satisfied forever, is in and through the grand salvation that comes in Jesus and Jesus alone. So if you're not a Christian, we, we would plead with you to come to Christ today so that you might be able to say right along with David, God, my God. God, my mighty God. Maybe you're a Christian, but you do not know God, the mighty God. What does that mean? Well, it's a little play on words. And it's a little play on words to just help you see and know and understand that, that this picture that we, we have here 
is that if the only time you have ever experienced God is in this room and in this sanctuary, then you have not experienced God the mighty God. Because God the mighty God does exciting things outside of this room. God, the mighty God, meets us in the most tragic, most awful, most depressing, darkest, most discouraging, most stressful, anxious moments of life. God, the mighty God, he he shows up in this room and outside of this room. Maybe you look back over your life right now and you're like, nah, I've never really had a desert. Everything's been smooth. Sorry, that won't last. (laughs) You'll have a desert. A desert moment is coming. And if you're a believer, then, then we want you to know that when that moment comes, God, by his delight and by his design, has made sure through Jesus that he will be there in that moment for That's what makes him the mighty God, mighty to save and save and save over and over and over again. Or maybe you're a Christian and you have seen the same God that David is describing. You've been there. You've been in that darkest moment. And through anger, or through confusion, or through tears, you, you heard the glory of God shouting to you. And you shouted back. <laughs> you shouted back something like, my sin, my sin, oh, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not just a part of it, but the whole of it, has been nailed to the cross. I do not bear it anymore. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Yeah, you've been in that moment where you were reminded of the glory of God and you said to your own soul, soul, it is well. It is well. It is well. So you've had days where you were afflicted, where you were anxious, where you were perplexed or persecuted. You've had days where where you were struck down or you were struck out. You've had days where you felt crushed and you felt forsaken. But then a few days later, a few weeks later, a few months later, your soul said, oh, yeah, I remember now. I, I remember it's well. Why? What, what did your soul remember? Your soul remembered that you are loved and that you have been rescued and that you have been redeemed and that you've been made free and that you've been made safe and that you may have felt crushed, but you weren't. And you may have felt forsaken, but you weren't. How? How did your soul remember that? Because your soul came to believe and realize the exact same thing that David did. 
Listen to what he says in verse 3. Oh God, my God, I earnestly seek after you because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. That's what it means to move in. That's what it means to move in. It means that your soul discovers and embraces and enjoys that the fix of all fixes for your soul is to know that you are saved. Saved to what? Saved to know your God, your mighty God. David learned. And some days he was sitting in the palace and he was like, God, my mighty God, as I enjoy this grand breakfast, I earnestly seek after you. And then when he's sitting out in the desert, absolutely alone, he wakes up and he says, God, my mighty God, I earnestly seek after you. Because whether I'm in comfort or whether I'm in conflict, whether I'm in the palace or whether I'm parched in the desert, I have discovered that, God, your love is better than life. It's better than life. So, friend, I, I plead with us this morning, move in. Move in. Move in to know God, the living God, the mighty God, because his love is better than life. His love is better than life. His love is better than life. May our lips praise his name.